When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Ted O'Connell author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Hey everyone, it's Patrick Beeman. I am the host and founder of Inside the Boards. You're listening to Step 2 Secrets, an Inside the Boards podcast. Today, I'm here to give you a question from Elsevier's Clinical Key. A 29-year-old female presents at eight weeks gestation with a chief complaint of heart racing, tremors, anxiety, and a weight loss of five pounds despite an increased appetite. Symptoms have occurred over the past three weeks, and this is her first pregnancy. Her only medication is a prenatal vitamin, and her vital signs are significant for a pulse of 110 beats per minute. On physical exam, she appears anxious, her thyroid is enlarged, but non-tender. No thyroid nodules are palpable. Cardiac and lung exam are normal, except for an increased heart rate. A fine tremor of the fingers is noted bilaterally when they are outstretched. Serum laboratory examination shows evidence of hyperthyroidism. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? Is it choice A, levothyroxine? Choice B, methimazole? Choice C, propylthiouracil? Or choice D, radioactive iodine ablation? And the correct answer here is choice C, propylthiouracil. So if a woman in her first trimester of pregnancy has hyperthyroidism and she's symptomatic from moderate to severe disease, she should be treated with propylthiouracil. To call attention to the incorrect answer choices, choice B was methimazole. So remember, methimazole is the drug of choice for hyperthyroidism within pregnancy, except for during the first or primary 
trimester, in which case you use propylthiouracil. Get it? Propylthiouracil or PTU, primary pregnancy. It's all P's. Otherwise, you use methimazole. We avoid it in the first trimester, though, because of some concerns over teratogenicity. Choice A was levothyroxine. So that's basically thyroid hormone, but in a patient with hyperthyroidism, that would just worsen the disease. Choice D was radioactive iodine ablation. So basically in a woman who's pregnant, you can't use it because it's radioactive and there would be potentially adverse effects on the fetus. If you want to learn more, by the way, about radioactive iodine ablation, you should check out the Inside the Board's main podcast and our series on Chernobyl and radiation and radiation oncology. At any rate, long and the short of it, if a woman in her first trimester of pregnancy is diagnosed with hyperthyroidism and she's symptomatic, she should be treated with propylthiouracil. This is Ted O'Connell, and this is the Diabetes Mellitus Chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th Edition. Question 1. Outline the current recommendations for diabetes mellitus screening. Universal screening is not generally recommended. Screening is more accepted, but not universal, in patients who are obese, people over 45 years of age, people with a family history of diabetes, and members of certain minority groups, including Blacks, Hispanics, and Pima Indians. Screening in pregnancy is mandatory. Question 2. Define diabetes. Diabetes is defined as 1. A glucose level greater than or equal to 126 milligrams per deciliter after an overnight or 8-hour fast on two separate occasions, or, number 2, a random glucose level greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter, or, number three, a hemoglobin A1c level of greater than or equal to 6.5% on two separate occasions. If the patient has classic symptoms of diabetes, which are outlined below, one test is sufficient to make the diagnosis. In an asymptomatic patient, it is best to repeat the test. An oral glucose tolerance test is common in pregnancy. Otherwise, it is rarely used because of poor reproducibility and patient compliance. With a glucose tolerance test, diabetes is diagnosed when glucose levels in the blood reach or exceed 200 mg per deciliter within two hours of receiving a 75-gram oral dose of glucose. Question 3. What are the classic differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Age at onset is most commonly less than 30 years in type 1 and most commonly over 30 years in type 2. Associated body habitus is thin in type 1 and more often obese in type 2. Development of ketoacidosis, yes, in type 1, rarely in type 2. Development of hyperosmolar state, no, in type 1, yes, in type 2. Level of endogenous insulin is low to none in type 1 and normal to high in type 2. Twin concurrence is less than 50% in type 1 and over 50% in type 2. HLA association is yes in type 1, no in type 2. The response to oral hypoglycemics, no in type 1, yes in type 2. 
Antibodies to insulin? Yes, at the time of diagnosis in type 1, and no in type 2. Risk for diabetic complications is yes in both. And islet cell pathology is insulitis, the loss of most B cells in type 1, and normal number of islet cells in type 2, but with amyloid deposits. Question 4. What are the goals of treatment in terms of glucose levels? The goals are to keep postprandial glucose levels less than 180 milligrams per deciliter and fasting glucose levels 70 to 130 milligrams per deciliter. Attempts at stricter control may result in hypoglycemia. Watch for symptoms of sympathetic nervous system activation and mental status changes. Number five, what is a good measure of long-term diabetes control? Hemoglobin A1c measures the average control of blood glucose level over the prior two to three months. The current recommendation is to keep the hemoglobin A1c level below 7 in most patients. Less stringent A1c goals, such as less than 8%, may be appropriate for patients with a history of severe hypoglycemia, limited life expectancy, advanced microvascular or macrovascular complications, and extensive comorbid conditions. The hemoglobin A1c is a good way to catch patients with nocturnal hyperglycemia or less than honest patients who falsely record low glucose test readings. A rough rule of thumb is that hemoglobin A1c times 20 equals the average blood glucose level. Question 6. When a non-diabetic patient presents with hypoglycemia, how can you distinguish between factitious disorder from exogenous insulin versus an insulinoma, which is endogenous insulin? Measure the C-peptide level. C-peptide is produced whenever the body makes insulin, but it is absent in prescription insulin preparations. Therefore, C-peptide is high with an insulinoma and low with factitious disorder. This is a classic USMLE question. Question 7. What should you remember before giving intravenous iodinated contrast material to a diabetic patient or a patient with renal insufficiency. Diabetic patients and patients with renal insufficiency are prone to acute renal failure from the intravenously administered iodinated contrast agents used for intravenous pyelography, conventional angiography, and computed tomography, CT scanning. You need to carefully weigh the risk-to-benefit ratio of using intravenous contrast agents. If you choose to give contrast, First, hydrate the patient well with IV fluids to avoid renal shutdown. Acetylcysteine and bicarbonate may decrease the risk of contrast nephropathy in patients at high risk. The concerns about intravenous iodinated contrast do not apply to oral contrast agents such as barium. Patients on metformin are at risk for development of lactic acidosis if acute renal failure were to occur after administration of intravenous contrast. Patients with advanced chronic kidney disease, those with acute kidney injury, or those who are undergoing a procedure that may result in emboli to the kidney, and those who require studies with intravenous contrast should have their metformin held before the procedure and for 48 hours afterwards. Metformin should be restarted only after kidney function has been re-evaluated and no injury is identified. Question 8. What is diabetic ketoacidosis, DKA? How is it treated? 
All type 1 diabetics will die without insulin. DKA is what happens before they die. Clinically, look for Kussmaul breathing, which is deep, rapid respirations, dehydration, hyperglycemia, acidosis due to excessive ketone formation, and increased ketones in the serum, often associated with a fruity odor on the breath, as well as ketones in the urine. Treatment involves intravenous fluids, insulin, and replacement of electrolytes, especially potassium and phosphate. For the boards, do not use bicarbonate to correct acidosis. Remember to search for the cause of DKA, which most commonly is non-compliance with insulin therapy. The second most common cause is an infection. The mortality rate of DKA with current treatment efforts is less than 10%. Question 9. What is non-ketotic, hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar state? How is it treated? Non-ketotic, hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar state is what happens to type 2 diabetics who go without adequate treatment before they die. Hyperglycemia and increased serum osmolarity are present in the absence of ketones and acidosis. Most patients are severely dehydrated. The first three treatments are thus fluids, fluids, and fluids, that is, intravenous hydration with normal saline. Insulin and electrolyte replacement is also required. The mortality rate can approach 50% if mental status changes are present at the time of diagnosis. Number 10. What are the classic presenting symptoms of new-onset diabetes? Polyuria, polydipsia, and polyphagia, that is, pee a lot, drink a lot, and eat a lot. You also should be suspicious if patients present with candidal infections, such as thrush or vaginal yeast infections, with weight loss as a result of excessive urination, or with blurry vision. Prolonged hyperglycemia causes the lenses in the eyes to swell, and the patient may become myopic. Older patients may even claim that they no longer need their reading glasses. That is, their presbyopia is temporarily corrected by lens swelling. Question 11. What are the common long-term complications of diabetes mellitus? Atherosclerosis, coronary artery disease, and myocardial infarction. Diabetics often have silent heart attacks, no chest pain because of autonomic neuropathy. Retinopathy. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness in the United States for persons under the age of 50 years. Nephropathy. Diabetes is the number one cause of end-stage renal disease requiring hemodialysis. Roughly 30% of cases, hypertension is a close second. Peripheral vascular disease. Diabetes is a leading cause of limb amputation and may lead to claudication, strokes, and impotence. Peripheral neuropathy. This complication causes silent heart attacks, numbness in the feet, and other findings which will be outlined below. An increased risk of infection. White blood cells do not function as well in a hyperglycemic environment. Couple this dysfunction with an inability to sense pain and clogged arteries that cannot deliver white cells to the site of an early infection, and you have a recipe for disaster. All of these complications can be delayed or even prevented by good glucose control. Number 12. What problems may result from diabetic peripheral neuropathy? 
gastroparesis, because the stomach does not empty well, patients experience early satiety and vomiting. Treat with motility enhancers, such as metoclopramide. Charcot joints. Joints in the foot and ankle are deformed secondary to lack of sensation. Patients may break a bone and not feel it. Impotence. The causes are neuropathy and atherosclerosis. Cranial nerve palsies, especially of cranial nerves 3, 4, and 6. Patients present with diplopia and extraocular muscle paralysis, which should resolve within 8 weeks without treatment. Orthostatic hypotension. This problem occurs even when the patient is well hydrated because the arteries do not clamp down when the patient stands up and the heart rate fails to increase appropriately. Pressure ulcers in the feet. As with Charcot joints, lack of sensation leads to overuse or failure to rest an injured or tired foot because it is numb and the patient is unaware. All diabetics with foot numbness should wear socks and comfortably fitting shoes and inspect their feet regularly. Most cases of foot gangrene in diabetics begin as a simple callus or blister. Number 13. Describe the treatment for diabetic retinopathy. If the retinopathy is proliferative, neovascularization or new irregular vessel formation, the treatment is panretinal laser photocoagulation. A laser beam is used to burn tiny spots around the periphery of the retina, sparing the central retina to prevent progression to blindness. Focal or limited laser photocoagulation is generally done for non-proliferative retinopathy only if symptoms are present from macular edema. All diabetics should be seen regularly by an ophthalmologist to monitor retinal changes. Question 14. Describe the onset, peak, and duration of action of each of the insulin preparations. Insulin aspart has an onset of less than 15 minutes, a peak at 1 to 3 hours, and a duration of 3 to 5 hours. Insulin Lispro has an onset of 15 to 30 minutes, a peak of 30 minutes to 2 and a half hours, and a duration of 3 to 5 hours. Insulin glulysine has an onset of 0.2 to 0.5 hours, a peak of 1.5 to 2.5 hours, and a duration of 3 to 4 hours. Regular insulin has an onset of 30 to 60 minutes, a peak of 2 to 4 hours, and a duration of 5 to 8 hours. NPH insulin has an onset of 2 to 3 hours, a peak of 4 to 12 hours, and a duration of 12 to 20 hours. Insulin glargine has an onset of one and a half to four hours, no peak, and a duration of approximately 24 hours. Insulin detimer has an onset of three to four hours, a peak of three to nine hours, and a duration that is dose-dependent and can range from six to 23 hours. Question 15. How do you adjust the dosage level of NPH or regular insulin for high glucose levels? Regular insulin starts to work in 45 minutes. Its action peaks around 3 to 4 hours after injection, and the duration of action is 6 to 8 hours. NPH insulin takes 1 to 1 and a half hours until onset of action. Its action peaks at 6 to 8 hours, 
and the total duration of action is about 12 to 20 hours. For insulin adjustments, therefore, the following guidelines apply. If the patient has high glucose at 7 a.m., increase NPH at dinner the night before. If the patient has low glucose at 7 a.m., decrease the NPH insulin at dinner the night before. If the patient has high noon glucose, increase the morning dose of regular insulin. If the patient has low noon glucose, decrease the morning dose of regular insulin. If the patient has high glucose at 5 p.m., increase the morning dose of NPH insulin. If the patient has low glucose at 5 p.m., decrease the morning dose of NPH insulin. If the patient has high glucose at 9 p.m., increase the dinnertime dose of regular insulin. If the patient has low glucose at 9 p.m., decrease the dinner dose of regular insulin. Question 16. Describe the Samoji effect and the Dawn phenomenon. The Samoji effect is the body's reaction to hypoglycemia. If too much NPH insulin is given at dinner time, the glucose level at 3 a.m. the next morning will be low. The body reacts to hypoglycemia by releasing stress hormones, which cause a high glucose level at 7 a.m. The treatment is to decrease the evening NPH insulin. The dawn phenomenon is hyperglycemia caused by normal secretion of growth hormone early in the morning. The glucose level is high at 7 a.m. and normal or high at 3 a.m. with no hypoglycemia. The treatment is to increase the evening NPH insulin. Question 17. How do you manage diabetic patients who are not allowed to eat because they are scheduled for surgery? Generally, one-third to one-half of the normal dose of insulin is given. Glucose is monitored closely, intra- and post-operatively by the anesthesiologist. Regular intravenous insulin can be given to control glucose levels based on blood glucose measurements. Question 18. What is the deal with beta blockers, hypoglycemia, and diabetics? If you give a beta blocker to a diabetic patient, you may mask the classic symptoms of hypoglycemia, such as tachycardia and diaphoresis, which are caused by catecholamine release. You must weigh the risk-to-benefit ratio of using beta blockers in diabetics, as in all patients. If a diabetic patient is having or has had a previous myocardial infarction, the benefits generally outweigh the risks of treatment. Question 19. What are the best oral agents to use in type 1 diabetes? None. Patients with type 1 diabetes require insulin. Currently available oral agents do not work for type 1 diabetics. Question 20. What is the first treatment for type 2 diabetes? Weight loss, because it may reduce glucose levels by reducing insulin resistance. However, medications are usually needed, and oral agents are tried first, typically beginning with metformin. Other agents include insulin secretagogues, such as glipizide, glimepiride, nateglinide, gliburide, and repaglinide, thiazolidine dienes such as rosiglitazone and pioglitazone, alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, such as acarbose and miglitol, GLP-1 agonists, such as exenatide and liraglutide, DPP-4 inhibitors, such as saxagliptin, citagliptin, 
and linagliptin, and amylin analogs, such as pramlintide. The thiazolidine dions are falling out of favor because of the risk of fluid retention and CHF exacerbation with rosiglitazone and pioglitazone, the risk of myocardial infarction with rosiglitazone, and the risk of bladder cancer with pioglitazone. Many type 2 diabetics eventually require insulin, and insulin may be required early. A big if the thank blood you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, in fact, for allowing us to put out this book using in a basal audio format. Early Please in check out the other Inside Generally, the Boards podcast over at InsideTheBoards.com. In order to get the blood the glucose inside the board and the inside the board study smarter series for question breakdowns the end and of tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step Two Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step Three. We actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast, so I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available, and even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies, so please do check it out.